0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are looking together at this collection of law that is very similar in some ways to ancient Near Eastern law codes that we have. And we are uh, engaging with these words of Torah that are called Sefer Habrit, the Book of the Covenant. That is the portion we are in. It is uh, part of this collection uh, in the Book of Exodus, and it's divided into different parts. And has a lot in common, as I was saying, with uh, ancient Near Eastern law that we have found explicated uh, in the archaeological record. There are some significant differences, and the biggest difference is that the law in our case originates with God. God. This is this is different. This part is different. Usually, the law originates with whom? King. Uh-huh. the king in the ancient Near Eastern law system so the law comes from the king and therefore is inviolable in our case the law comes from the king of kings uh, it comes from God God self uh, and that is a shift in in thinking in the ancient Near East in the ancient world um, what we have here is not for you lawyers in the room um, it is not an entire code. One could not take this and take it to a civilization and have that civilization run, right? This is not an entire law code. What that must mean is that this, these laws that we find here are most likely amendments, changes, additions to what was understood as practice in, in ancient Israel. Um, this is not the entirety of, of ancient Israelite law, so this is a collection at some point that we have of um, of other things that get added um, to what already would have been common practice. Some of these are very similar to ancient Near Eastern uh, understandings um, of how you do things, and some are not. They're, there's wonderful stuff written, if you're at all interested in this, there's really great stuff uh, written um, on biblical and ancient Near Eastern law and comparing them and um, kind of understanding uh, Israel's place in the societies of her time. Uh, mostly what we do is look for, what does this say to us in our time? We will therefore start at 22, 4, and we're not, I'm just going to have us read for a bit just to get a sense of the kinds of topics that this law code is concerned with and to get a a growing sense of what, what does it mean to be ethical and moral and in line with the divine will in one's regular life if you're an Israelite. So... We'll we'll explicate some of them, but I just want to have us read and get exposed to a bunch of them first. So who would like to read, starting at verse 4?
0: When a person who owns livestock lets it loose to graze in another's land and so allows a field or a vineyard to be grazed there, destitution must be made for the impairment of that field or vineyard. When a fire is started and spreads to thorns so that stacked, standing, or growing grain is consumed, the one who started the fire must make restitution. So just keep on. (coughs) When a person gives money or goods to another for safekeeping, and they are stolen from that other person's house, if caught, the thief shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house shall depose before God and deny laying hands on the other's property parenthesis in all charges of misappropriation pertaining to an ox, an ass, a sheep a garment or any other loss whereof one party alleges quote this is it the case of both parties shall come before God the one whom God declares guilty shall pay double to the other. When a person gives to another an ass, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to guard, and it dies or is injured or is carried off with no witness about, an oath before Adonai shall decide between the two of them that the one has not laid hands on the property of the other, owner must acquiesce, and no restitution shall be made. But if the animal was stolen from the court, <coughs> restitution shall be made to its owner. If it was torn by beasts, the guardian shall bring it as evidence, not needing to replace what has been torn by beasts. When a person borrows an animal from another and it dies or is injured, its owner Not being with it, that person must make restitution. If its owner was with it, no restitution need be made. But if it was hired, that payment is due.
1: Okay. So we're getting some ideas here about property, about movable goods, about livestock. Right about responsibility um, for one's own and or someone else's damage to crops. Right, so this is this is all dealing with material goods. How do you say that in in legalese? Property. property. So dealing with all kinds of property. So what do we get a sense of just from the without even going into them and explicating them? What do we get a sense of here from what this means, Laura? Yeah.
2: But to me, it really just talks about sense of fairness. There's no real sense of punitive measures, unless there was a thief involved. But even then, it's still about making somebody whole. You got Give your, you know, if you broke it, you've got to return it. It's not and spend ten days, you know, locked up somewhere, it's just making restitution.
1: So it seems that the, the, the interest of the law is to make things fair
2: and to make somebody whole and to recognize responsibility for it too like there's sometimes a beast takes your thing well that's just bad luck. but you know if you're responsible if you set the fire you've got to be more careful and you need to make somebody whole
1: okay Beth what were you going to add I was
3: just going to say what it is is the code is focusing on the
2: person who loses the property not not the person who takes it or causes it to be
1: So the focus is not on the criminal act, right? This is not a criminal law code. If you do this, you get five years in prison, right? That it is about how do we have the victim get what they need in order for us to live in a society that we can be in harmony, right, with one another.
4: But in some cases, the arbiter here is God, not people.
1: Mm Hmm. Indeed.
4: And I... That's not comfortable for us modern. <laughs> to put it mildly.
1: Yes. So. That's
2: not practicable. How do you know?
1: Well, so. So, so, so that is, right, always the question. Who, how do we know? Um, and, you know, we had things in the ancient Near East, uh, in ancient Israel, like the Urim Vatumim, which was a way that uh, they, they would, the priest could ask a God, a question and cast the urim and tumim and from the results know what god wants yes or no it has to be a yes or no question
3: what is the urim and the
1: tumim it was a it was a means of apprehending the divine will that some people in the ancient near east would have had similar practices that we would call divination you look at the entrails of an animal, and it tells you something.
3: You said casting something. So,
5: by.
1: so the so we're not clear. We don't know exactly how the urim and Tumim work. We don't know. It was a yes or no question. It had to be phrased yes or no, um, and it was part of the priestly garments of the the high priests. Garments, but it seems that they use the word casting, so that there's something tossed or right. You know that the, the ornament to me is what it's what it's in. Is it a coin it's toss? Like it's like it's in like a pocket. So but there, coin toss here. Um, like I think it's black yeah. or white. I, I think it's black or white. I would have to, um, for some reason, blanking. But um, we're not clear on how it worked. We know that it was understood by ancient Israel to be the will of yod Hey vav and it was discreet from divination. Now that wasn't divination. So you didn't look at some, you didn't look at tea leaves and say, okay, this means you're going to have three children and your husband's going to leave you, right? It, it was yes or no and only the high priest could do it and uh, in, a, in a certain way that, that meant it was coming directly from God as the answer. Uh,
3: yes.
2: Question about these particular rules. Would, were these, sort of comparing it to an, a modern understanding, our bill, our bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, those were like the really important ones. And then, sort of later on, whatever we thought of it, as we forgot, oh, this would be good, this one we should add. Are these more like that? Oh, we haven't done anything about crops, we need to add something? Or were these thought to be like the next most
1: important things after the code they already have. So it's it's not like we had the Ten Commandments first and then a bunch of other law, and these came to talk about that other law, right? So this story of the giving of the Ten Commandments, those would have been in place for a long time, mm-hmm. as would normative understandings of property and what you do with Livestock and what your responsibilities are The These seem to be Amendments to Or things right that were left out like oh we didn't say Anything about crops and we saw what happened last Fall on the Goldberg okay. estate Right so um, So that then that comes in here um, it, The Ten Commandments I, I think are More about kind of the structure Over which a lot of the other Law is laid um, So there's There's something between the Ten Commandments and this. If that makes sense.
2: Exalted as being the the next most special. These are
1: correct. Correct. We can assume there were other things that were critically important that are not written here. Indeed. All right. So, so we get a sense of what it means to live in community, dealing with property and movable goods. I leave something with you. Something happens to it. This is normal life. Again, so it focuses on who has been wronged. It is not punitive. It's not a criminal law code looking at how do we punish those who offend. Some things we do, right, but not so much in in property. Um, let's go on to some other kinds of uh, laws. We're going to get the law of seduction and then some other Categories like around sorcery and apostasy, the disadvantaged in society, um, which we'll spend some time on, and uh, and then judicial integrity. These are the categories that are coming. Are
2: you talk about you shall not tolerate a sorceress? We are, <laughs>
1: if you want to. All right. So, fifteen. Someone read.
4: If a man seduces a virgin for whom the bride price has not been paid and lies with her. He must make her his wife by payment of a bride price. If her father refuses to give her to him, he must still weigh out silver in accordance with the bride price for virgins. You shall not tolerate a sorceress.
3: Whoever lies
4: with a beast shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to a god other than the Lord alone shall be proscribed. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not ill treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will hear their, hear, heed their outcry as soon as the cry, as they cry out to me, and my anger shall blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows and your children orphans. Wow. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. If you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, You must return it to him before the sun sets. It is his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. In what else shall he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor put a curse upon a chieftain among your people. You shall not put off the skimming of the first yield of your vats. You shall give me the firstborn among your sons. You shall do the same with your cattle and your flocks. Seven days it shall remain with its mother. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. You shall be a holy people to me. You must not eat flesh torn by beasts in the field. You shall cast it to the dogs.
1: All right. There you go. Okay. So such a light-hearted thing, I know. So so we are here dealing with the laws of seduction. Right, if a man seduces a virgin uh, for whom the bride price has been paid, this is not marriage laws. Right, this is marriage laws would have been already in practice. They would have been orally transmitted. There would have been a norm about what was done, what was not done. Clearly, we are getting here an amendment, right, to um, the law. What does one do when someone has seduced a man has seduced an unattached? Virgin. It's like, okay, wait a minute. This is kind of, you know, neither here nor there, what, no man's land. What do we do, right? So, it, clearly, a, a case of something that needs to be um, explicated further. Carol,
3: what's the difference between sorcery, other than sorceress, and divination and casting stones and
1: all the other? So it's an interesting it's an interesting collection of terms that we don't really deal with. Um, they're all practitioners of not kosher forms of telling the future, of apprehending information. Um, it's not tolerated in Israel, right? Because it is it is over and against an understanding of the absolute omnipotence of the universal sovereign Creator God, right? So you can't have that. Going on because that is drawing on other entities other than Yudhe Vavhe, and so it is. It is not allowed. Um, it is considered incredibly dangerous. It is treason, essentially. So if you are doing that in relationship to a, a, a deity other than Yudhe Vavhe, you have committed treason. You have been disloyal to the king and therefore are subject to capital punishment. So,
4: Even though this is translated, you shall not tolerate, there's a note here in the Red Book that the literal translation is, you shall not let a witch or a sorceress live. Correct. And it mentions this was the basis for the Salem witch trials.
1: Yes. Yes, not the first time the Bible has been used, Mm -hmm. right, in incredibly abhorrent, disgusting ways. Um. And the thing to remember is uh, what's also important about understanding these kinds of laws is that you're dealing with, and we have to always remember this, that they did not come in from Egypt, conquer the land, kick out the Canaanites, and have this nice new state with a new population. There was a small group that were Israelite, that were attached to this Yaoist tradition and this new understanding of monotheism, and they Proliferated, they took power, they spread their influence, and they converted the Canaanites. So, what you're always dealing with is a population who is inherently pagan. Mm -hmm. They are not monotheists. The population of ancient Israel would have been, for the most part, converted Canaanites. So, the danger of practicing any kind of divination, you can understand. Differently, if you understand, if you start doing that, you undermine the new regime. You undermine the new religion. You undermine the new authority of the new one God. And that is treasonous. Yes? Right? We still have that understanding. If you work against the United States of America and sell secrets to, you know, some other sovereign nation we understand that to be so dangerous to the enterprise of america that we put someone to death we still understand that as being worthy of execution because it's that dangerous to the enterprise uh, itself that's how they understood this it would have been the same for them as as treason it's that same level of endangering the society the order of the society the the rule of of God and God's appointed uh, people
2: really changes your impression that way I mean to if you think about what if I were a Canaanite in that time and uh, it makes the these monotheists seem awfully um, you know dangerous overlords you know, demanding everybody conform to their new
1: cultic. Right. And in our ethnocentric tendencies, you know, we tend to think of, you know, monotheism, Well, how liberating for those poor Canaanites who didn't know better before we got there with, right, our Yahwist monotheism, right? But, right, if you're living your regular life as a Canaanite, this might or might not have been terribly welcome. And we know, we know from the archaeological record that ancient Israelites never gave up their attachment to the other gods. Never. In, in every quarter of every part of every ancient Israelite city, they have found remains of Asherah, statues to Asherah, right? Remnants of household, you know, Idol things, fertility goddesses, in every single quarter of every single time in any period you want to pick in ancient Israel. So they, it never got gone. So it remained a threat because it remained there, right? Well, it's
3: interesting we have that
1: today with the conversos. Where, uh-huh. you know, that's, I just think it's right. So those were so those were the conversos of their time that were still worshiping Asherah in secret, preserving the old ways, even under this regime of, you know, monotheism that threatens capital punishment for being discovered.
4: So is it possible to reconstruct this? Or do we have to throw? I mean, what do we do with this? And there's other lines in here as well that anti-Semites love. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Because it's, it's just another example how this is an evil book, the same way some of us look at the Quran and pull out one sentence and say, Oh my God, you see, it says fill in the blank. So, what do, what do we as modern Jews do <coughs> with something like this? Or I don't know if it's in this section, but there's a thing about if you uh, insult your parents, you should be killed.
1: So, the. You know, for me, this, this is what rescues the possibility always for me of being a fundamentalist, right? There's, this saves me always from ever having any possibility of being a fundamentalist because th- there's no way you can look at this and, and look at something else and say they are both equally, you know, you have to say they're equally true and binding if you're going to go to this is the divine will and word from God to us. Um, um, so what I have used this for is to argue with fundamentalists, right? People who want to tell me I pick and choose right what i follow as a progressive jew that i am somehow a lukewarm jew at best because i pick and choose i say to them really let's turn to chapter 22 shall we of the book of exodus right and let's let's look at some stuff here and you want to talk to me about picking and choosing 100% i pick and choose right cuz we always have. We always do. The rabbis went through excruciating, twisted machinations that had them putting their, you know, he- heads below their tuchus on the chair to come up with why it could never be proven that a child was ben sorel or morin, a re- stubborn and rebellious child that should be brought out to be stoned. The Talmud has an incredible amount of legal minutia dedicated to you have to do this and it has to be that and he has to be, his pubic hair has to have started coming in, but it can't be so much pubic hair that he's an adult and it has to be, so that means he's 13, but 13 and a half would be too late. I mean, they go on and on and on in order to winnow it down so far that you could never... You could never have all the things met that it would require to declare someone a ben sorel More, a stubborn and rebellious child, therefore he shall be stoned. Now, we don't have to do that. So the rabbis picked and and chose also. They just twisted the legal stuff around so much to say so we could never happen and it never did. We just don't have to do that. We can say... This is not our understanding of justice. This is not our understanding of living into a moral and ethical relationship with the one God as it informs our daily or civil or religious lives. Yay. Like, Isn't that great?
3: And this is a
1: historical text. This is a historical text, 100% that's we can say that as non been common or appropriate in that time it's
3: not appropriate in our time
1: correct somebody's going to look at our law code in the United States of America 500 years from now and say they did what to people who sold secrets to the Russia they did what they killed them right so Right. It's, it's a historical text. Certainly they thought it was dangerous enough that that was accepted. We think there's things that are dangerous enough that we still have capital punishment. Whether we think that's right or wrong is not the point. Um, so the question is, h- how does our understanding of that grow and change? And to your question, Bert, what what of this do we still want to consider and what are our as criteria? binding? Well, and
4: what, what are the criteria? Because if you... This this is the fundamentalist argument. <laughs> if if you reject one of these, why not reject love your neighbor?
1: As your uh, so this why is not? where <laughs> I take This is where I am a fundamentalist reconstructionist. Uh-huh.
5: This <laughs> is why where I'm a holy roller.
1: <laughs> I am a holy roller in that um, I do believe that the criteria are established by the community. What is it that the community decides is still compelling. It's not rabbinic authorities, right? I'm not that kind of Jew, right? And it's not everybody decides for themselves. I'm not that kind of a Jew. I mean, some things we decide for ourselves, obviously, and some things rabbis deal with, whatever, you know, standards about conversion or whatever. But for the most part, Reconstructionism believes it is up to the Jewish people to decide what is compelling to the Jewish people and that every community has to struggle and wrestle should, I hollify, it should only be that that's what they sit around and do, but that they should struggle with what of these principles continues to be important for us, and how, and why, and under what circumstances, and to be engaged in a very intelligent, informed discussion constantly about that. And I I would that we took more time, frankly, um, to do that.
2: And it, to me, it, it doesn't bother me. It, that that sounds completely right. As a, an American who sees the you know our U.S. Supreme Court is the exact same thing. They're the strict constructionists. This is it, what it was written is what they meant. What what did people believe at the time? That's what we should can still do now. Versus the the more modern. We're an evolving society. It's an evolving document. What is the you know what what is the people of the time believe it's exact same parallel so it makes it very easy to explain to people I think in that way
1: yes
3: it's like there's the letter of the law and then there's the spirit of the law. and I think um, the ones that the that we don't actually do the letter there's you could maybe see the spirit the ethical intentions within all of our laws
1: sometimes yeah right sometimes we can do that Sometimes it's the other way. Sometimes we do the letter of the law and change the spirit of the law. So, tzitziot, wearing tzitzit, right, was, I mean, for me, you know, it's about revaluing that, just to say, what are, what are my responsibilities as a free person that only free people in the ancient world could wear tzitziot, right? I ground it in an archaeological fact that's nowhere here. Right, so the whole spirit of it informs for me the wearing of tzitzit, that we wear these fringes of the free because we understand that we are free not because we earned it, but because it was a gift and that we have an obligation out of that freedom that is stated here, which is let them be a sign, you know, about all this. But so as reconstructionists, we can go both ways. We can change what's under, we can do the practice and not have it mean what it originally meant. And go the other way, which is let's take what it what they were trying to get at, and how might we express that? And it would look really different.
4: If I can play devil's advocate for a second.
1: Oh, why not? It's a Jewish group. I,
4: I understand about the community. Uh, I, by the way, I don't have a better solution. Okay, oh, but but sometimes the community comes up with some pretty horrible things. I mean, there. What what the community wants is not always moral or right or just. I mean, there are times when people elect... I mean, Hitler was elected.
1: But there's you not know? But there's not for us another authority other than the community with whom we would entrust those decisions. So what we have to do is stay vigilant about engaging with these texts that we believe have stood the test of time as being a pretty good... Gauge, not gauge, a pretty good guide for how to treat people fairly and build a compassionate society that takes care of those at the margins and the edges. It's got its problems. It's got its issues. Um, but in staying, that's why we don't come up with something entirely brand new. That's so why we reconstruct.
4: We have a covenant to engage in conversation with this. And that's our conversation, and hopefully it doesn't take us too far off. I believe so. Hopefully.
1: I believe by staying rooted in some values that have stood the test of millennia, I believe it keeps us safer, right? The Nazis were not in dialogue with something like that, and certainly not something based in ethics and morals about what is right and what is wrong. I'm not saying they didn't understand what they were doing as good, they did for you know the fatherland and for the purity of humanity whatever um but in dialogue with what you know what what checks our our desire of the day you know du jour like you know um and for me that's when people say to me why do you bother with that why do you bother with those reconstructing those old things like who cares it's so three thousand years ago right and like because there are things like do not oppress the widow and the orphan that Pam's talking about the spirit of that not even the the, spirit the ethical grounding in it's not optional to throw some people away it's not optional to consider the weakest among you as being your responsibility that there's a net and a level below which no one is allowed to fall that for me is eternal That is an eternal truth that guides moral behaviors in society that isn't going to get old because we're always going to be human beings who want to marginalize people because it's going to mean I have to give up something to take care of them. And we're always going to have the impulse to say I'd rather have more and not have to take care of people who are hungry in L.A. Thank you very much. That's always going to be our tendency. And so we're always going to need this eternal check on that greed. It's not the greed is bad. It just is. It's who we are. But we're always going to need this check on that because it's always going to be human. I mean, maybe someday we won't need this at all. And then, wow, that would be amazing that we will have evolved into, right? Semi angelic beings who are always doing the right thing, but I don't see it happening anytime soon.
4: So you see this as a conversation.
1: I see this as a conversation,
4: not a, a one way. Maybe maybe that's what's so different about Judaism, is that we've got a three thousand year old conversation with this stuff that goes on, and it's not just a one way. It's not Sinai. So Rabbi Sinai was one way.
1: Rabbi Jacob Staub, I, I love how he talks about Sinai, and, and he says. You know, when we talk about Sinai, he says Sinai was a moment in the conversation between the Jewish people and the divine, and we might even call it the fun- the founding conversation, right? That you know, that's when we start to coalesce as a people, Israel, with an idea of this God Yod Hey Vav Hey. That so that's our mythic. Like code for the the beginning of that conversation. We call that Sinai. And he says what we have here in this, in these texts, what we have is the human side of that conversation. That is my favorite way of understanding Torah. It's a conversation that began a long time ago and the conversation continues and this is the human side of that conversation
2: meaning the humans trying to figure out what all of that what's in it
1: that this is not god this is us apprehending if we're in dialogue and real true relationship with god our understanding of god which is a loving forgiving compassionate just force that works for transformation and healing and right, justice and equity and all of that. If we're in conversation with that, how would, what would we write down as what we're supposed to do
3: about this,
1: about this, about that, about what happened, right? So that for me is the best way to understand this. And what we have chosen to do as a people is to stay in conversation with the notes from the original conversation.
4: And then
3: and it's Talmud. a conversation that happened a really long time.
1: Ago. It's a conversation that happened a really long time ago. We remain in conversation with the conversation, um, and we we have a vast amount of literature, Mishnah, Talmud, Gemara of you know like Midrash, okay. all this like it, the conversation and the texts, you know the notes from those conversations continue. Thank God, Blanche.
3: In the paper this week there was a story about Hallmark having a conversation with farmers in Mexico officials. The goal is to improve the life of the laborers in the United States who work in the fields. Walmart. 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 Well, I went through not eating marching for the rights of <coughs> Et cetera, et cetera, And it's gone. That's what's... <laughs> I, I was so naive, I thought what we fought for was forever. But it's not. It's wiped out completely. So they're starting over. And it has promise, because both Americans and people in Mexico are working on it together. And I don't know if they Maybe they don't have enough workers coming over because of the conditions, but they were
1: pretty harmful. So you remind us, Blanche. First of all, I'll invite you to understand your naivete at the time to be the saving and redeeming force of the, the universe. That naivete that says, if I work hard enough to change this, it will be a lasting change. Without that naivete... Nothing would ever get done. It's really important to, I believe, have a mature naivete that we choose, an idealism that we choose. Because why else would we put ourselves through what it takes to read, to know, to to feel the pain of those migrant workers that you're talking about, like to, to really understand the condition of their children's lives? Why would I want to do that if... I don't have the naive, wonderful belief that this is actually going to improve something. And what you remind us of is that it's every generation has to be taught this because it's not ever going to end the the greed. It's not ever going to end. And so... For now, this injunction, that set of rules, that set of whatever is a victory. Yay. That goes maybe into the law codes, desegregation, right? Those things that, that have lasted. Other things, like here we go with corporations, you know, and, and we win and then, you know, they manage with all their lawyers and their cabillions of dollars to whittle away at it and we're back to nowhere again. That's why it's so important to educate another generation about consumption and about the ethics of consumption and the ethics of protecting this planet that is in our care, right? So that we have to do both. We have to believe we can make lasting change, and we have to continue to keep the worry alive and the passion alive and teach it. And I'm a little concerned that your generation, right, that I don't see enough of what your generation has done. I don't see it in our kids right now. I'm concerned about, about that, that I, we, there is a disconnect right now between our young people and the conversation with their elders and the way that that passion for justice, you know, is passed on. And I'm deeply concerned. Um,
3: but don't we have the ideal um, structure in bar and bat mitzvahs to take kids who are really just starting to think about justice and compassion and so on, and help them to make decisions and to and to start the dialogue with Torah?
1: In a perfect world, the answer to that would be 100%, and that is exactly what we're doing, but that we're not in the ideal world. We get these kids two hours a week, um, and they have to learn Hebrew, and they have to learn the melodies, and they have to learn the page number, and they have to learn, and they have to learn, and they have to learn, and they have to learn learn in order to stand up and do their bar mitzvah that day. That's what we teach them. So if I had them three days a week, 100%. We'd be talking about, okay, what does this mean, right, to us today? I do that in my little sessions with them when I teach them their Torah portion, and we try to discuss, well, we do discuss, you know, what does it mean for them in their time? But that's five sessions. You know, I where is it happening, right? I, I'm very concerned about where is it happening. And now, to Blanche's point, or to what I was saying about Blanche's point, um, our our kids are cut off from a certain kind of conversation um they're in their devices they choose their content they choose what comes in they're not stuck at a dinner table with people who are talking about right civil rights and what that was like and what they're, they're they choose all the content that comes in so if they get it in school okay but they're not having a conversation with the people who were there. They're, I'm concerned about the breakdown in, and they don't think we have anything to say. This is Harold Kushner wrote a book recently. Um, I, I've said this before. He's written a book that's talking about the way things have gotten flipped, and that now they think we have nothing to say because we don't know how to make the latest gizmo work. Some of us. We ask them. I, I make it a point not to ask my daughter how to fix anything on the computer. I make it a point. Right, It would be very easy to say to her, Eliana, I, I can't because I've never used an, a Mac until now. I've always been a PC person. So I'm trying to figure out a Mac. And it would be very easy to say to her, how do I do this? I will not do it. Because it reinforces this idea that we don't know what we're doing. And we don't have any wisdom or experience. It used to be you had experience. You passed that down because they needed it. And the only way to get it was from you. Because they had to either live it or get it from you. And now... They have all the knowledge about how to make stuff work and speak a language that we don't speak fluently and therefore denigrate the knowledge of the previous generations. And it's the first time in history that that is so, that they have the knowledge to make things work, that we, as the elder generations, are, some of us, clueless about. And it's a very, I think we have to be very careful about how we go forward on there communicating an, this.
4: There is an argument that a lot of this comes from the picking and choosing. That what that comes way, from the no, picking and choosing? That, that the whole idea that there's no, that the past has no authority. I'm not even talking about parents, but the past has no authority. You know, Reconstructionism says the past <coughs> has a
1: vote, vote not, a not a veto.
4: veto. For many people, they flip that around and they say, ah, well this means I don't need to pay attention to the past and I only integrate in other words, they don't go go to the tradition first and then accept or reject. They start by rejecting everything and then you have to argue something in. So a more traditionalist would argue that because I sound like an old fogey, which I guess I am (laughs) No, 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 but that's you know, there's no respect for the past. There's no respect for parents. Why? Because everybody figures they can just do whatever they want because it's optional. So mm-hmm. I don't have the answer to that. Right.
2: I'm not fine. as terrified as you all are.
4: Oh, good. <laughs> and
5: I, and I, I see my grandchildren, and the values they have are much sounder than the values I was brought up with. My father was a secular Israeli. And he didn't want us to go to synagogue. And he didn't. He never spoke about morals or values. He fought in the war. I <coughs> knew nothing about anything. My grandchildren are brought up with values that are so impress me. Um, it's not that they learn Torah, although they, they do that too. They go to synagogue and everything. But like their mother takes them to um, the shelter and they have to see how people live. They have to learn how to make food for the shelter. They go to animal shelters and help with the animals. They've, they've got a very moral um, grounding. I'm very impressed. It might be that they're not going back to uh, the Jewish past, but what they're building in the present is very impressive to me.
1: And if that were the majority of children, I would be fine.
5: I must add to that that my daughter-in-law is... Um, Swedish Protestant,
1: mm-hmm. so I don't care what flavor it is. Yeah, it's great. about rooting oneself in moral and ethics, right? And she that she
5: has better moral and ethics, yeah. than the loss of our nice, you know, Jewish.
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent, absolutely. But
5: it's, it's a very. But they have something we can't write them off.
1: I'm not writing anybody off. Let me be very clear. I'm not writing anybody off. I am concerned. I'm concerned in what I see. I'm just concerned. That's my job. <laughs> right? It's my job to worry, you know, about wh- wh- where, where is this being communicated to our children? It's my job to worry that this isn't present enough in their lives. I don't care if it's this or any other moral code. I don't see it enough in our kids, um, in that gen, in our generation. Um, I, I look at what they're talking about and, and I'll get off it after this, but you know, um, what, what they talk about with, you know, kids who are always needing this constant validation because they got a trophy just for showing up, right? And so now they're a real problem in the workplace. They're having real issues in the workplace now that, that these young employees are needing validation 73 times a day just to get their work done. Because it's like, you know, I'm supposed to be special and wonderful just because I'm here. It's like you need to do your job, to stay here right that's the kind of stuff i'm talking about there's no it's like where, where's the the sense of responsibility of i need to contribute you know i need to work i need to make sure you know i'm helping feed whatever you know whatever It's just it's like that's the stuff that's that, that i see that i go wow right where are we and i'm and i'm not i'm not saying the problem is them i'm saying the problem is us where where are we communicating this 2 hours a week Lisa? It's just
3: children, though. As you're saying, in the workplace, those are adults
1: at one. <laughs> we raised them. Yeah. We raised them. They're the young people yeah. of our time. something We raised them.
0: Show for work
1: Yes, ma'am. 100%. All right, let's go to... Is it okay
0: to change the subject?
1: <laughs> I suppose, Ruben.
0: <laughs> something caught my attention when we were reading this. Uh, not putting a curse on the chieftain is the only uh, reference that I know of where uh, uh, politics power uh, structure is mentioned other than that everything applies to everybody
1: so there's other places where there's stuff that applies to judges you know there's stuff that apply to people in power the king there's laws about the king so there's, there yeah, there are laws that, that deal with that's, that's judicial integrity and, in Torah. yeah, 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 100% about, you know, who who should be a judge and what the judge should and shouldn't do and should and shouldn't pay attention to. And the king can't have a bunch of horses in his stable and can't have too many wives. All that's in Torah.
0: Okay. All right. All right.
1: That was one of the problems with King Solomon, right? You
0: mean for the five books, or this or that? Both and. There are no kings in
1: it, Torah. But it prescribes what needs to happen when you're going to get to the land and you're going to want a king. This is what the king's going to be allowed to do. Yeah. So it's already here because, of course, they already had a king when they wrote that. Exactly.
0: I've seen a special treatment for a
1: class
2: and I thought it was released. but this <laughs> um, um, Can you more m- Sure. At 20, where it just says, You shall not wrong nor oppress a stranger. Yeah. Um, that seems different than the <laughs> sort of you shall welcome. It sort of means kind of leave them alone, don't make it any worse. <laughs> you
1: know? So. So what you're saying is, it says, "Do not wrong them." Doesn't say help them, or be nice to them, right? So um, the good news is, uh, this is not the, the last time we see the Gare addressing issues of the Gare in our uh, text. There are other texts that say, "You shall," so right? Inter- yes, um, and here it's because it's dealing with a category of laws that, um, just like the bra, just like the virgin, it's like. Who's going to protect her family's interest? Remember, the family owns her sexuality. Who's going to protect the family's interest now that she's been seduced? So it's the same thing like who's going to protect the stranger or the orphan because they don't have anybody to protect them. So it's saying you don't get to capitalize on the fact that there's nobody to answer to with them. You must... Treat that You can't mistreat them um, just because there's nobody who's going to come after you. If you do, you must treat them a certain way. You know what it is to be a stranger. Uh, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Um, same with the widow and the orphan. That's why they're next. These are the other vulnerable people in the ancient world, or people who there's nobody to come to, you know, to their rescue, to their aid, if you should wrong them. Um, and in other places it's stated in a slightly more positive way but um, I want to look at some of um, for me some of our greatest teachers on these on these principles of uh, living this way um, we have um, in here the loving one's n- uh, neighbor right or or, le- or like not even loving forget that even just you know how you treat your neighbor's property how you deal with their if their ox falls under a burden somebody you hate you see someone you hate their ox has fallen under a burden you have to go help Lift the burden off the ox and help them get their ox back on their feet. Like, why does still have to say someone you hate, right? Someone you like, you might
2: do it. Someone you like, <laughs> you
1: might do it anyway. Someone you hate, you think, nah, yes, nah, no. I'm not wasting my time, right? So, um, so I want to turn to your back page. Thank you, thank you. I know. I <laughs> you never know how I'm gonna get in and out of them, so um Ira Stone so you look in the middle of the page this is Rabbi Larry Bach writing uh, for the from the Institute of Spiritual Jewish Spirituality that paragraph it says Ira Stone Ira Stone in his responsible life the spiritual path of musar writes compellingly about cultivating ethical concern for the neighbor the other and expanding our sense of who matters to us In this passage and he's talking about you know laws about the neighbor he plays with Raya, neighbor, and reut, desire. To speak of desire in such a positive way might seem jarring to those of us who practice uh, for him in a more Buddhist key, meaning, you know, you know, desire is about wanting, acquiring, attachment. Um, but the passage is nevertheless helpful from Iris Stone's book. One of the questions that we must ask ourselves is, who is our neighbor? The answer to this question is never definitive, but rather evolving. The word for neighbor in Hebrew, re'ah, is derived from the same root as the word for pasturing or shepherding. The definition of, quote, my neighbor thus might be the person for whom I am responsible. If we have an insatiable desire, re'ut in Hebrew, to meet the needs of those for whom we are responsible, and this becomes the very intentionality of our consciousness, then the answer to our question must be that our neighbor is a constantly expanding category. <laughs> the one who was closest to us, literally our beloved, is our first neighbor. But the very experience of such a responsibility itself increases our need for such responsibility, driving the list outward to include family, friends, ethnic and national affinities, and ideally, ultimately, all of humanity and all of creation last night we talked about community what's the point of community and for me this this was my answer without really really realizing it till i read this last night after that panel was this is the answer for me is if we can practice this with the people in this room right i don't have to like somebody to to see them as somebody i'm responsible for wow that's huge that is so counterintuitive to how we do things right? Usually we see things as I, it in the Buberian system, right? Is it somebody who's going to be helpful to me? Is it somebody who's going to be around for a while? Is it somebody who has some influence? Then I'm going to go out of my way, right? Otherwise I really don't have time. Like, and I, I need to get to my next thing. That's our kind of, that's where we start and that's fine. Torah doesn't say that's a, that's, Awful. It says, okay, that's who we are. That's fine. Um, but <laughs> this is how you need to behave. You can want to talk to that person who has more influence more, but you don't get to. You have to talk to everybody and treat everybody, right? In this space with respect. And the goal is if we do that, that circle expands and, and it moves outward. Then it isn't just this room, but I've learned it in this room. Or in my kindergarten classroom, right? No hitting, no hair pulling, right? Share your stuff. So, you know, I've learned it there. And then that starts to expand who I feel responsible to, <laughs> responsible for. And that if it expands far enough, we get it that this is one human family. Duh. Right? Like, and, and the planet is our responsibility, That's what's at stake, I believe, and I believe Iris Stone is is hundred percent right that practicing these these ways of loving one another, meaning behaving as if one sees someone as someone one loves, then we learn how to do that, and we learn how to expand our understanding of who that entails. Right. Right? Because don't we have an insatiable desire to take care of our kids? Because we understand that we're responsible for them. Don't you have an insatiable desire to take care of your dog? Because we're responsible for them. So we have this insatiable desire to do for them, right? To treat them well, to take care of them. Like, well, what if that circle expands, and I'm not just responsible for my children, but for your children, which I am, <laughs> right? Right? Like I love that that they're my kids. If they're in this building, it's mommy nearest, right? Eh, eh, they're all our kids, right? That 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 you start to then desire to protect them, right? And and give to them, and have good things happen for them, and that as that expands, it does become an insatiable desire to have for the people who you're responsible to have them have good. Things happen for them. What if that meant everybody? Wow. Alright. Go to Sheffield Gold, Rabbi Sheffield Gold, on the front of your packet. In dealing with our laws of property, drop down to where it says, in other words, on page 81 of her text. In other words, kindness supersedes the rules of property. It's not just what, what's mine. Right? Empathy for the neighbor who might shiver through a cold night is what is really important. We are given the assignment of being God's ears as we listen for and respond to the cries of the poor and oppressed. Whenever we resort to the logic of what is mine is mine, God reminds us that all the earth is mine. Mishpat, our our Torah portion is Mishpatim, laws. Mishpat is usually translated as rule, judgment or ordinance. When I encounter this word, she says, I understand it as impeccability. When the Toltec shaman Don Juan cautions Carlos Castaneda that he must be impeccable, he is trying to impress upon his student the utmost importance of staying alert and aware of the consequences of one's actions. Every word and deed ripples out to affect the whole, so the welfare of the whole must be considered. What does it mean to be impeccable? Impeccable. We are blessed with the responsibility of being scrupulous with what we consume, what we waste, and how our lives impact the planet. This responsibility helps us to stay awake and aware of our potential to destroy as well as create. Mishpatim strips us of any excuses for cruelty or apathy. Even our enemy may count on our help when she is in need. So this sense of... Again, of responsibility for is a loving sense, not a burdensome sense, but a loving sense and that a sense of responsibility keeps us awake and aware is what she's saying about our potential always to destroy or create, right? When we were talking about how in some country, you know, how dirty the public spaces were litter and filth and junk everywhere and and the guide was explaining to us that you have to understand in some places they do not consider the outdoors of their personal space to be their issue their concern so what you see as littering does they don't understand that as an infraction of any kind the public space is not their concern their house is impeccably clean. You could eat off their floors and they throw that trash out the window. So, right, because in our ethnocentric, how could they do that, right? So, because it's a different relationship to to, to that space that's not, quote, mine. That's not mine. It's not my responsibility. So what this is saying is, if it's all my responsibility because it all belongs to God, and therefore I'm responsible to help take care of all of it. Then it changes my relationship to: Am I going to throw the tinfoil away, or am I going to like spread it out and I fold it up and use it for the next baked potato? It's every. It keeps us alert and aware with everything we do about are we about our capacity if we're responsible for it, our ability, our capacity to destroy or create. In every, or support in everything that we do. And for me, that is one of the best parts of spiritual rigor, right? Is that it does keep us awake and aware to what we're doing in a different way when we have that sense of responsibility. Um, All right. Um, One more. Turn over to Rabbi Rami Shapiro, one of my all time favorites. There's a lot here, so I'm trying to pick. Um, For you were strangers in the land of Egypt, the second paragraph. One would think that Torah would refer to slavery when reminding us of Egypt, but this is never done. Really? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Never mention slavery. Ever. Over and again, it is the quality of being a stranger that we are called upon to remember. This is the greater evil. Why? Slavery can be overcome by law, but the quality of being a stranger is a matter of personal morality. Don't forget you were the stranger and that that's the most heinous of evil. That you can say African American people are now not three-fifths, but considered a whole human being, and they are no longer allowed to be enslaved. That does not alleviate the worse evil than that. Not that that's not horrible, 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 horrible. It is, of course. What's worse than that is that you still don't treat them like people. You still don't treat them as equal. You still don't see past the color of somebody's skin. They remain a stranger. That is the real moral rot that we have to be reminded of constantly, says our tradition. I love that. It, it's being a stranger, being treated as other. That is what renders someone unable to live a full human life in, in, socia- in the society they're in, when they are treated as a stranger. Torah forbids one to harm the stranger, and then it goes beyond, Laura, the law, and appeals to deeper emotions, to our memory of being strangers, and asks that we allow that memory to kindle our compassion for those who are strangers still the Torah is not satisfied with not harming the stranger. It wants us to identify with the stranger, to share in his or her strangeness. Through this identification will come an end to the stranger's status as stranger and a beginning of a new status as neighbor, then perhaps as friend. So um, drop down to the bottom paragraph. The Jewish concept of God, talking about a God who is compassionate, meaning a God who's willing to suffer, right? Compassion means with suffering. The Jewish concept of God is a wholly new idea. It is not our concern for monotheism that makes our concept unique. Other peoples, the Egyptians included, experimented with that idea. What makes the monotheism of the Jews so unique is its ethical component. Ours is an ethical monotheism. One God is not enough. It must be a commanding God who establishes ethical standards by which harmony is maintained and justice ensured. What does it really mean that God suffers with us? It means, first of all, that God and we and nature are not separate. We are one. Not that God is identical with nature or reducible to me, but that nature and I partake of God as a wave partakes of an ocean. So... Poison the wave and you poison the ocean. It's that simple. It's that direct. Poison life and we poison God. Foul the lives of our fellow creatures and we foul God. What if? What if? We really took it seriously. And when people say, you know, it's, Silly, this God business. I'm like, really? Cause if we took it really seriously, it would call us into this. We'll close with, you shall be holy people to me. What does it mean to be holy? Holiness is the state of compassion that reveals the unity and interdependence of all life and the mutual responsibility of each to the whole. We are holy when we treat others with respect and kindness. We are holy when we safeguard the powerless. We are holy when we protect the earth. We are holy when we see to the holiness of others. We are holy when we do holy things. And the bulk of Torah is a listing of what those things are. May we find the imperative in figuring out what that is for us in our time, each of us in our private lives, in our communal life, that we might contribute uh, to a world that is more reflective of this kind of compassion and this kind of holiness. Shabbat shalom.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go
4: to our website, www.ourki.org.